Hey everyone, it's your homeboy, uh, Ezra, here. Uh, I'm not with my co-host, my dear bestie boy, Ming, today. I mean, I am, but you're not. Ha. Uh, um, no, he's actually in the other room. I'm just sitting in the bedroom. Uh, this one's a little uh, dip- different today. Um, I'm trying to think. I've had so much going on that it's been really hard to like consolidate all the shit that's gone on uh but something really dope happened this past weekend i went to chicago for the midwestern psychological association conference um it's the mpa conference uh it was in a really cool spot in downtown chicago like five minutes in the bean but you know i wasn't there for that i was there to present my study and hang out with my research group with my professor and have a good time at this conference so that's what we did and while i was going around i was talking to some people handing out my business cards networking um but a few of them are just really interesting so i asked if i could record their little spiel because uh, we each have like three to five minute elevator speeches that we have to give um for like a little presentation time so the first guy i found was miles christopher of Augsburg's University. Um, the title was Gender Differences in Gaze Patterns. Basically, they examined the influence of participant gender and sex of target on gaze patterns towards different body regions. Uh, preliminary results suggested that male identifying participants spent more time examining body regions as opposed to the face of both female and male targets than did female identifying participants. So basically those who identified as male uh, looked at both uh, the body parts and even the face more than the females did. But both objectified both um, sexes. Uh, I thought that was interesting because obviously they didn't, I think they had only two non-conforming individuals which they had to take out of the study and he kind of goes into that a little bit when I play his spiel but I thought it was interesting because how could this play with trans people um do we gaze differently do we gaze the same this um could be more towards like an innate like technique we used over time that we've like adapted to for like mating strategies finding competitors finding partners um so it's really not like down to just like the clothing the cute fits that they're wearing or not wearing or whatever um this might just be an innate thing and regardless of gender identity or how we present ourselves i wonder if the gaze is the same all around so i went and talked to him and this is what he said so yeah, uh, over the last year, I've been doing research on objectification and the objectifying gaze. Uh, very briefly, objectification is generally kind of taking a gestalt human being and breaking them down into a bunch of categories that you can judge and rate and kind of try to make an approximation of your judgment of the whole person. Obviously, that doesn't work very well and it's pretty negative, uh, but the objectifying gaze then is specifically doing that in a visual manner. So not making eye contact, focusing on sexualized body regions, that sort of thing. Um, And there's been a lot of research on objectification as it pertains to kind of the effects of it. Uh, So looking at the effects of objectification on men and women. Um, And generally it's found that women are far more negatively affected by objectification than men are. Uh, It leads to negative mental and physical health outcomes. It can lead to kind of reducing the amount of time they choose to stay at a workplace. Lots of things like that, very negative. And men generally are 
unaffected or very in, barely affected. Um, this difference in the effects, though, has led to a very large difference in how people research objectification, and it's meant that generally research has only looked at female targets for looking at the prevalence of objectification. So only really considering whether people look at women more rather than looking at whether they look at men and women more. Um, so my research is basically trying to expand that, looking at how everybody looks at everybody and just seeing what differences kind of arise from that. Uh, and to that extent, we had uh, a set of 24 target images of male and female individuals uh, in four different attire conditions. So business, casual, fitness, and swim, kind of least revealing to most revealing. Uh, and we were looking at how people would look at them. So we used an eye tracker to see how long people would look at their body region specifically, so below the neck, in order to measure roughly objectifying behavior. Um, we also had participants in both a condition where they were asked to look at the attractiveness of an individual, and then half of them looked at the personality of the individual to try to elicit specifically objectifying behaviors for certain individuals. The personality that matters. Exactly. <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, we found that for male participants, so those who identified as male, were uh, looking at either male or female targets. We specifically looked at how the targets were presenting. We didn't do any androgyny scales or anything like that because that would somewhat muddy the waters. Yeah. For future research should do that, but we did not. Um, we found that male participants were not more objectifying to one target sex or the other target sex. They were equally objectifying to both. Uh, and females actually were also equally objectifying to both males and females. But male participants were far more objectifying than female participants overall. So they had a higher body region dwell time than women, no matter what other cases were going on. Which is very interesting and does somewhat line up with past research, which I'll discuss in a moment. Uh, but also, as one might expect, we found that the more revealing an entire condition was, the higher body region dwell time it elicited. So people who were in swimwear were much more objectified than people who were in business wear, which is not, un not unexpected, pretty much what you would think. And also, those who were primed to be objectifying, those who asked, were asked to look at the attractiveness of an individual versus their personality, had higher body region dwell times than those looking at personality. Again, pretty much what you'd expect and what previous research has found. The way that this slots in, though, is that it actually pretty much agrees with past research in terms of men seem to look at women more than women do. It's just that they also look at men more than women do. And so it's less seemingly about kind of sexualization or attraction and more about something else that's going on within gender. Um, and we don't know what that is. There's a couple of explanations we had. There might be, there's some research that has shown that male individuals identifying as male tend to be less likely to make eye contact. They tend to be more averse to looking at facial regions, which could explain this if that's kind of across uh, all people who they look at. Yeah. Uh, and there's also some potential that there's an adaptational advantage or there was an adaptational advantage in that individuals whose tribes were more likely to immediately focus on looking at body regions and assessing the threat, therefore, were more likely to survive and reproduce than those who did not do that. And so men have this inherent and continuing uh, kind of uh, predisposition yeah, to, to uh, looking at body regions. Uh, yeah. But also, we didn't examine specifically whether these are valid. We just, those are 
in the re in the literature things that might explain this difference. It's like competition almost. Yes, like exactly, exactly. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so, um, yeah. That's amazing. Oh, that's really amazing. And we, we did, I'll, I'll mention this, we did look at uh, sexual orientation and potential like attraction differences, mm -hmm. and there did not appear to be any effects of orientation or attraction yeah. based off of uh, like how people were looking at it. We reran the models wow. with both only heterosexual and only non-heterosexual individuals, and those seemed to be entirely identical almost. So very interesting and apparently not entirely about kind of sexual attraction or interest. That's um, unfortunately, we only had three individuals who did not identify as male or female, and so we couldn't run any robust analysis on that. But future research looking at how individuals who are either outside of the gender binary or something along those lines uh, interact with this, whether they're somewhere in the middle, whether they're completely different, that would be very interesting future steps to take. Because yeah. I think if it's like all across like the same gaze anyways, like I think it could be similar. Like it, it doesn't well matter who you are, like you're gazing exactly. regardless. It, it yeah. very well could be. It's We just can't extrapolate currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so and I can. I mean, I can just get your name if you want to. Put oh your yeah, name Miles in. Christopher. And yeah, your um, university. If you uh, I I go to Augsburg University. Where's that at? Uh, in Minnesota, just inside you Minneapolis. Like it? Yeah, it's a good place. I'm graduating this semester. Ooh, so. that's exciting. <laughs> are you going anywhere else? Or are you? Uh, I'll be at the U of M for a uh, PhD program. That's sick. That's dope. Okay, sorry, I don't no, you're fine. Me. But thank you. Yeah, it was really nice meeting you. So yeah, I thought that was a really great study um, by Miles. Thank you so much, Miles, for letting me interview you. He was my first interviewee, and he was super cool, and he let me talk to them without it being weird, because I was, like, the only one, I guess, like, recording people maybe there, so I didn't want to, like, make anyone uncomfortable, especially because these are just, like, graduate, undergraduate students. Like, these are just people like me. I'm not trying to scare them at this big conference when most of them are, like, older than me and way more mature and professional. But, yeah, just because I was walking around in a suit, they thought I was some big hot dog. And, like, I am a hot dog. But, you know, not less in the setting. It's, it's a little less confidence here. Okay, I was a little more antsy. Uh, but, yeah. So next up is um, my bestie that apparently only had one fridge magnet on his fridge. When I first went up to him, I was like, hey, this is my podcast. This is what I'm doing. Can I record? You know, you get a little spiel. Uh, I gave him my business card, which is, you know, as we all know, a fridge magnet as well. And he was like, oh my God, that's so dope. Like, everyone was so, it was just such a flex having the business cards as fridge magnets. Totally gas. Came back home with like two remaining. So I got to order some more so I can get you all some more business cards. Um, but yeah, uh, shout out uh, Joey Rhodes because Homeboy got our one of our last cards. Um, anyways, uh, so yeah, as I said, uh, Joey Rhodes from Oakland University uh, did this next study that I recorded. Um, it's the impact of anxiety on xenophobia and discrimination during COVID-19. I just thought this was really interesting because, I mean, how this has all been affected. I have a lot of um, Asian-American friends, um, and I just, you know, it's good to be aware of the homies. Like, even though I'm not Asian-American, like, I still need to be aware of these things, obviously, and I want to stick up for my friends and help homies out. So I went up to him and I was like, tell me about this, because I need to know more. And uh, the current study examined the relationship between state anxiety, trade anxiety, health anxiety, and attitudes of xenophobia and discrimination during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the results suggested that anxiety related to health concerns may be a better predictor of attitudes of xenophobia and discrimination compared to general state anxiety and trade anxiety. And I know that um, state trait and health anxiety is a little confusing. I swear he goes into it in a spiel um, because I was a little confused.
reviews at first, just because, like, I don't know the differences. Like, these people here would know way more than I ever do currently, so I'm just still trying to, like, catch up on these psychological terms, because some people are, like, name-dropping, like, whole-ass articles and shit, like, oh, from blah blah at all 2006 it's this model that blah and everyone's like oh yes yeah, this model and i was like bitch i don't know what model you're talking about but i'm gonna play along because i'm 20 and you all are like 32 but anyways let's hear joey's thing because it's dope as fuck and yeah he was really good gave a really good rundown yeah, so my name is Joey Rhodes. Uh, school is Oakland University. And this project was looking at different types of anxiety and how they relate to xenophobia and discrimination. So we looked at state anxiety, trade anxiety, and health anxiety. And the hypothesis was that all types of anxiety would predict feelings of xenophobia and feelings of discrimination. Uh, the results show that health anxiety does predict feelings of xenophobia and feelings of discrimination. Uh, however, one of the interesting findings was that as state anxiety increased, feelings of xenophobia decreased. Uh, and the intuitive thought process behind that is that maybe someone's contemporary feelings of anxiety are just so great that they obscure feelings of xenophobia. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, the main gist of the results. So what is state anxiety? So state anxiety is what you are feeling right now. So the anxiety you're feeling in this moment, whereas trait anxiety is your general feelings of anxiety just normally throughout life. And then health anxiety was feelings of anxiety that are related specifically to COVID-19. All right, great, thank you. So yeah, uh, thank you, Joey, to letting for letting me record you. That was super sick and very kind of you. And you seemed really cool. And I hope you like Oakland University. And I hope it's good for you. Um, okay, so our next person is um, Rachel Taggart. Um, and she goes to Purdue University. And her study was on nostalgia proneness moderates the effect of chronic ostracism on meaning. This was a big one um, for me. I walked past it a few times being like, those are a lot of words put together that don't make any sense to me. Um, but yeah, once she ran through it, she did a beautiful breakdown of it, and it was actually one of the most interesting studies I've found throughout walking around here, in my opinion. And I can't even begin to explain it the way that she did, so I'm not going to try and butcher it. I'll just give you um, the little like 50-word abstract from the program. So it says, ostracism increases meaninglessness. The current study indicates that nostalgia proneness reduces the negative effects of ostracism on meaning of life. On meaning in life, sorry. The negative effect of chronic ostracism on meaning in life was weaker among those higher in nostalgia proneness. Implications suggest inducing nostalgia can boost meaning. So yeah, that's her little rundown, and I will let her introduce um, a more thorough speech to you. Take it away, Rachel. Yeah, name, pronouns, school, whatever you want. Hi, my name is Rachel Taggart. I go by she, her pronouns. Um, I'm an ostracism researcher working with Kipling Williams at Purdue University. I'm a graduate student in my fourth year. And I'm going to talk to you about my project on ostracism, nostalgia, and meaning in life. Um, this is the study one, the first study in the package of studies looking at this relationship. And so because it's a correlational design, we measure something called chronic ostracism. So chronic ostracism is a more severe form of ostracism. Ostracism being, meaning being ignored and excluded, right? 
So chronic foster syndrome is more severe because it either occurs more frequently to the individual or it occurs for prolonged periods of time. And the effects can be pretty severe. Um, it's been linked to depression, alienation, hopelessness, suicidal ideation and attempts. So pretty severe stuff. And another effect that we've looked at too is meaning in life. So both chronic ostracism and ostracism have been shown to lower meaning in life. So you might be wondering like, so why do we care? Why is, is viewing your life as meaningful even important? So it's been shown to actually have benefits for an individual. So some of those benefits include better physical health, also lower incidence of psychological disorders like depression, suicidal ideation and attempts. So I'm like, okay, so how do we weaken ostracism's negative effect on meaning in life? That's a big thing for me. And so one thing that I was thinking about that could be used as a tool is inducing uh, feelings of nostalgia. Nostalgia is a very complex emotion. It's defined as a sentimental longing or wishful affection for the past. And so previous research has actually found that nostalgia increases meaning in life. And so some research by Van Tilburg and colleagues in 2019 actually looked at the underlying mechanism that explains why it does. And so nostalgia first increases your sense of social connectedness or how accepted or, or how much belonging you feel, which then increases a sense of self-continuity, which is this idea that your present self connects to your past self. And, it, and, it, and that increases meaning in life. And so that's kind of an abstract thing to think about and wrap your head around. The reason why it does this is that previous research has actually found that nostalgia tends to be pretty social in nature. You know, our lives don't exist in a vacuum, right? And so when we feel nostalgia, we tend to reflect on moments spent with loved ones and other people that we care about. And that reminds us of how, how accepted we are and or the belonging that we feel. And that helps to increase the social connectedness part. And then also reflecting on your past self helps you view your past and your present as connected together and as following this narrative. And so I don't know how familiar you are with meaning in life research, but the way that it's defined by Laura King and her colleagues is that a life that is meaningful is a life that is significant, has a purpose, and follows a coherent pattern. So if you're viewing your story, your life as a story that that has a past and a present is connected together, then that increases the coherence portion. But it also increases the significance portion because you're reflecting back on things that, that matter to you, that you have a, this wistful affection for. Yeah, that's all that, yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, great. And so our hypothesis was basically that nostalgia proneness, which is this tendency to feel nostalgic, will weaken chronic ostracism's negative association with meaning in life. And so we measure chronic ostracism, nostalgia proneness, and meaning in life. Do you want me to go through the example items and say them out loud, or is yeah, no, cool, so for chronic ostracism, we use an eight-item scale. An example item is, in general, others leave me out of their group, rated from one hardly ever to seven almost always. Um, that's Adrian Carter-Sowell's scale of chronic ostracism. Nostalgia Prolis, we use the seven-item scale. So how often do you experience nostalgia? Rated from one very rarely to seven very frequently, and that's the South Compton Nostalgia Scale, if anyone's interested. And then the, the, next, uh, the next one is presence and meaning, and we use Michael Stanton scale of meaning in life and here's five items so I understand so here's an example item it's five items for the scale I understand my life's meaning rate from one absolutely untrue to seven absolutely true and if you look at the graph here we find a significant interaction between ostracism and nostalgia on meaning in life and we actually find what I hypothesize we find some support for it so we find that those higher nostalgia proneness actually have a weaker negative relationship between chronic ostracism and meaning in life so it seems like nostalgia proneness does have a protective effect but the, the reason that we need to do follow-up studies 
this is just correlational research. It's very preliminary. We can't make causal statements. All we're looking at is relationships here. So in previous, or in, our, in, in following studies, I'm actually going to manipulate ostracism, manipulate ostracism and nostalgia, and measure their effects on meaning and life. Yeah, and so my hope is that nostalgia could possibly be used as a, a tool, an intervention, to increase meaning in life and to guard against ostracism's negative effects. Yeah. So what if the nostalgia is negative? That's a good point. So that's something that I've been thinking about could be a drawback of this approach. So take, for example, um, a person who's had very negative experiences in their life and they don't have a lot of positive things to reflect on, then this might actually backfire for that person. But there's also research that suggests that when we... Um, when we nostalgize, when we feel nostalgic, we tend to kind of see our lives as following a redemption sequence. Mm -hmm. As kind of like, oh, okay, I went through this bad thing, but I've made it through and I'm over here now. Yeah, and so that kind of makes you feel better in a way. So there could yeah. be this counter-argument that says, no, it's still good, and this is why. Does that yeah. make sense? No, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I definitely think that that's a really, really important question is, what about if you don't have these social connections? Then maybe if you view it more as a redemption sequence and you have this tendency to do that, that that might help you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. See, you did really great. That was really good. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. So, yeah. Really great discussion with Rachel. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I, you know, she was kind of worried, I think, but she did a really great job, and I really enjoyed talking with her. Um, I meant to speak with someone from Purdue University while um, at this um, conference, and I didn't get to, but I got to speak with her, and she's from Purdue, so it was so interesting that I still got to interact with someone from there, and see, like, on, what kind of research comes from that facility, because, you know, I'm still looking for graduate schools, I want to get my PsyD, I mean, the only gender-neutral prefix is doctor, so I'm gonna go with that, um, and, yeah, uh, Dr. Hickey has a good ring to it, it's kind of sexy, Dr. Hickey, my dad's not a doctor, I don't think his, yeah, maybe I'll be the first doctor. Hmm, that'd be kind of dope. Anyways, yeah, Dr. Hickey, that'll be me one day. Um, yeah, uh, so it was good to talk with her, especially because I was wondering so much about if the nostalgia was negative, because the whole time she's talking, I'm, like, thinking back about my life, and I've just always kind of had a more, like, negative outlook, I guess, maybe to begin with. Maybe just because I'm fucking tired, you know? I don't know. Um... But, like, looking back on this stuff, you know, it's kind of, like, dim sometimes, and I don't really want to look back right now. Um, it's not, it doesn't make me feel great, so I'm trying not to look back, because, ow. So, living it day by day, it's kind of hard to have this nostalgia, because the nostalgia, like, I want it so badly, like, I want the past so badly, but at the same time, that'll never be, and I have to, like, move on from that. So, like, my nostalgia was more negative, I guess, in a sense, and I wanted to see if that would still have, um, the suggested implications of boosting meaning, um, but yeah, maybe I'll talk to her more about that, because that's a really interesting topic, especially with, like, you know, trans people and their past lives that they lived pre-transition, I mean, they could have way more negative nostalgia, or people, you know, that suffered, like, childhood traumas, or anything with, um, you know, traumatic disorders, like, I don't know, it was interesting. Then our last one, um, they're super sick, I really had fun talking to them, they were more, I don't want to say my age, because I don't actually know the age of any of these people, but she was more, like, on our level, like, hip to it, like, you know, she was messing with us, um, and we were having a good time, we, ex 
strange like social media and stuff um like you know just making those connections because she seemed really cool and into our work and when i gave her my business card you know she thought it was dope as shit obviously and her partner thought it was really cool and um like we've talked to them me and my research group have like continued to talk to them after the conference and i just think it was really dope so yeah thanks guys for sticking with us and still talking to me because that's cool because you know you're in like another state and like i can still like have a rapport with people and like these are people that i'll see in the future hopefully at other conferences if y'all at um spissy in puerto rico pull up so yeah their names are leah stamford and emma walquist they both go to grand valley state university and their topic was examining the link between social exclusion and aggression um i thought this was interesting for you know trans and gender non-conforming people or you know anyone within the lgbtq plus community um because obviously we're more socially excluded um and therefore are we more aggressive um does that elicit aggressive tendencies from us therefore like reinforcing these negative stereotypes you know it's just things to think about so although none of these studies really were focused on transgender non-conforming individuals um i just looked at it from that perspective through that eye because i knew that most cisgender people aren't and don't um and that's i mean these are all potential research studies that i could look into um and bring this trans research to light um whether it's positive or negative i mean the more you know the more you can help and assist and you know mediate and protect i don't know like you know i'm just trying to figure out how i can help everyone within my community and those that like care about them you know because i can't just help the people that are you know directly transitioning or directly being affected like i gotta help the parents the the aunts and uncles that want to learn but don't know how um so yeah i want to include everyone and not elicit you know these aggressive tendencies from excluding anyone in my podcast or within my community so shout out Liam and emma um that's dope as fuck so yeah so basically their rundown says that prior research finds that social exclusion sometimes elicits aggression uh the current study simultaneously tests four explanations for this effect uh results showed that anger and self-esteem both independently mediated the exclusion aggression relationship other basic needs did not emerge as mediators and type of exclusion did not differently impact aggressive reactions so whether they were um directly excluded or just like ignored didn't matter they were still going to be aggressive af which like honestly like you know if someone excluded me from something like i'd fuck a bitch up too okay so i'll let her give the full spiel and then we can talk about it because this one was spicy okay um so we're presenting examining the link between social exclusion and aggression my name is leah stamford and okay yes hello so in our study we were exploring the question for why experiences of exclusion sometimes but not always elicit aggressive retaliatory reactions and so what we do is we tested four different theories of existing exclusion measures and for example is it a do we aggress because of its provocation to our basic needs or is it linked to specific anger emotions or another one is is the directness of rejection more damaging more impactful than indirect um indirect ignoring and so from that we also postulate whether that influences motivational orientations and that the sense of social loss with the direct rejection 
is very impactful and it's hurtful and it might you know lead to more aggressive retaliatory behaviors you have a sense of social loss there's nothing to lose versus ignoring you might feel that it's more ambiguous you don't know why you've been ignored you might feel more inclined to be more pro-social more amending to the relationships and so essentially what we did is we tested them through the implementation of an imagined workplace scenario we had 168 college participants that were assigned to one of three different conditions where they were either accepted ignored or rejected by their new colleagues yeah so for example, one of the um, one of the visualizations was you're in the break room with your coworkers and they are talking about planning lunch. If you are accepted, they're going to invite you to lunch with them. If you're ignored, they're going to talk about planning lunch and then not invite you. Oh, They'll no. do it in front of you. No. It'll be very upsetting. <laughs> and then, or if you're completely rejected, they're going to tell you, we're going to go get lunch, but you're not invited. Perfect. And so, so and we wanted to make sure that the distinction between, you know, that ambiguous, oh, we're not going to include you versus we don't want you would be in, impactful enough to show a very clear distinction and reactivity between ignoring and rejection. And so after those workplace scenarios, we did a se several measures testing both like present reactivity as well as retaliatory behaviors. And so our first one was basically testing their current feelings of like threat to their basic needs at that time. And another one was the state hostility, whether they were feeling angry, dejected, um, aggressive. And then our following two are our um, aggression measures, where one is an adapted measure of the chili pepper um, by Scholl. And instead of inducing aggression, we use it to measure aggression and retaliation. So our, um, our participants were instructed to um, assign the spiciness of their coworker's meal when they've explicitly been told their coworker does not like spicy foods. So it was very cute. It was all online and there were pictures of peppers from green to red. It was so fun. Um, and so that was one of our aggression measures. And our other one was a peer performance where we got to evaluate the quality, performance, efficiency of whomever, an individual who excluded, included, or rejected. Or, um, and then our results here unfortunately show that there was no significant difference between ignoring and rejecting, though we did find that experiences of exclusion elicit aggression always more than acceptance. Um, it did confirm one of the previous theories that anger, emotions are mediating factors, but something that we didn't expect to find was the role of self-esteem, which um, when we look at the need threat model, we think of control and safety and you know belonging as the main factors for social interactions and aggression but we found here that self-esteem played one of the most significant roles um, and we don't have all of the graphs up just because we see the results between you know it's visual but um, you know we have to wonder whether this role of self-esteem is a factor of the workplace whether it might be replicated elsewhere like in a school setting or other social settings and we if we were to replicate this I probably want to make sure we're controlling for participant perception of whether those rejection versus ignore conditions were actually as direct or indirect as we want them to be perceived and we're just really hoping that this is going to give a better idea of applied exclusion research just because there's so much theoretical literature. 
And what makes it very cool is since there is such little research on the knee thread applied, yeah. we, we have something for it now. But what makes it more interesting is that the findings do contradict what it posits. So we actually just talked to the to the author of that theory. So. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, um, so then you said self-esteem. So is it like lower self-esteem means like they'll give them spicier food? Or... Kind of, yeah. yeah it's okay. in a way, so we found that the reactivity was higher for exclusion, and okay. then within that we did um, three condition ANOVAs mm -hmm. um, for all measures and to find, and then we cross-compared the means, and we ultimately found that um, of all of them, self-esteem had like an independent effect out of all of the okay. other ones that was more notable than what we would have anticipated. So yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I hope that all makes sense. No, that did. That was great. And I also <laughs> liked your tattoo. I was gonna thank say you so much. Yeah, I was, I was just when you're pointing, I was like, that one's so sure. Thank you. So yeah. Now, if you get what Lee was saying, like, and what I was saying, like, oh, fuck them, right? If they if they ignored you right in front of them, like, oh, I would be putting the spiciest shit on their food. Like, what the fuck is that shit? Um, nonsense. That's what that is. Yeah, like, if, if they don't know about it, and they hate spicy food, and I get to spice their food, I'm throwing all the spice in there. There's no bad effect on me. And they're gonna be like, oh, you're putting that bad energy out in the universe. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. I will put out whatever energy I want to put out. And my energy is all good, okay? But their energy is bad. So I'm going to give them some bad energy back because I can do whatever the fuck I want. And if you want to step on me, I'll step on you right back. My parents always said, like, you know, if someone hits you, you can hit them right back. Like, I'm going to make sure no one else ever hits me again, you know? So if I'm going to put that spicy food in there, I'm going to put that spicy food in there. And that's why I think that regardless, um, you get an aggressive reaction. I mean, I just proved it right there. Did you see how aggressive I just got within like two seconds of just thinking about being potentially excluded? <laughs> Does that say anything about me? No. <clears throat> but, yeah, like, why you gotta do that? Like, if they wanna be excluded, then, or if they wanna be included, then just fucking include them. Or, like, don't do it in front of them like a fucking dick. And also don't lie about it and go behind their back and, like, pretend you're not doing it, but actually go do it. Because I bet you, I bet you if they rerun that experiment, you would get the same result. And you would get some spicy fucking lunch. Get fucked, excluders. We love all. We want everyone to be included. We don't want to talk shit. We want to support everyone however we can. And if y'all gonna be bitches about it, then y'all gonna get your spicy food. And that's just the tea. I think I'm spin facts at this point. But I think I think Lee and Emma were on that vibe too. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for talking with me and we even had some good convo after that we even exchanged snapchats like that's crazy like we're friends friends i love friends i want to make all the friends you know and that's what i'm doing expanding the empire building a network of homies that will be there for me just like i'll be there for them and i hope that the listeners are also feeling that same way you know i got you maybe you got me i mean if you're listening it seems like you might get me a little bit um, you know me more than most people, I guess, then, so, that's what this shit's kind of for, just a little insight on our experiences, and how we perceive them, and how I took them in, and I just hope that this was a good one, um, because it was really good for me, I learned a lot, and I just want to thank my homies for helping me have a good time there, and relax, and be in a new city, and have some fun, while learning a lot, so yeah, 
Uh, we'll see you guys next week. I'm sorry this is a little uh, late to this show this week. I've just got so fucking busy with traveling and shit. And I slept for like so many hours. And now I'm like just starting to like function again. And it's like 8 p.m. on Tuesday. Like, bruh. I came back in 7.30 on Saturday. But, like, anyways. Yeah. I'm tired and I'm gonna try and wrap this up and I'm gonna try and go to bed. But I love you well, and Ming My King will be back with me in my arms next week. I mean, he's in my arms. He's gonna. I'm gonna go hug him and then he'll be in my arms. But so he'll be in my arms in like five seconds. But he won't be in y'all's arms until next week. So, <laughs> anyways, I love you all and I'll talk to you later. <laughs>